Okay, so in the eighth grade, I was not exactly a model student, especially with homework. If I couldn't get it done in the 15 or 20 minutes I had in the morning before school, then chances were not good. And one day, I rolled into Valleywood Middle School and quickly realized there was a problem. A big assignment was due that morning. We were supposed to conduct an in-depth interview with a senior citizen and write a report on the exchange. (laughs) Miss Carver gave us three weeks to do it, and I hadn't done anything. Not one sentence. But there is nothing like blind panic to inspire heroic efforts. There was no time to actually interview a real person, so I made up a person who could have been real and interviewed him instead. My masterpiece was entitled, Times They Sure Have Changed, an interview with Mr. Claude Johnson. It began with Mr. Johnson remarking that, indeed, times, they really have changed over the years. Why, it used to be you could get two licorice pop for a penny, but no more. Mr. Johnson had a lot to say. The buildings, why, they've gotten so big. And the cars, the cars have gotten so fast. Oh my, concluded Mr. Johnson. Times, they sure have changed. The end. (laughs) All right. Now, I may have neglected to mention one part of the interview. You see, in my paper, in addition to times sure have changed in the price of licorice, Mr. Johnson made a startling admission near the bottom of page three. He said that he and his friends love nothing better than chasing black boys down and beating them with sticks. Mr. Johnson marveled. Wow, those black boys could run. Mr. Johnson later admitted that it was a terrible thing to have done, and he sure was sorry about that. Why? Did Mr. Johnson do these terrible things? I do not know. But at the end of the first period, I proudly turned in my paper just like everybody else. And one week later, Miss Carver began class by congratulating us on the fine work we did on the senior citizen interview. In fact, she said some of the papers were so moving, so inspiring, that she forwarded them on to the superintendent for special consideration. Well, Miss Carver did pass my paper on to the superintendent. And yes, the superintendent's interest certainly was piqued. So interested was he that he came to our classroom and asked me to accompany him to his office right now. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, the gig is up. Mom and Dad are going to be ticked. He walked me to his office. He asked me to sit down. And then the superintendent told me that he wanted to award my paper a special academic honor. Of course, I agreed that would be fantastic. And then he said, Glenn, You know, there's been a few racial incidents at this school we'd like to address from a community standpoint. Your interviewee, Mr. Claude Johnson, had some very interesting things to say about the whole race question. I want him here at the school to address a special student assembly. Lord have mercy. The superintendent wanted to meet Mr. Johnson, but of course... That could never happen. There was only one thing to do. I had to kill Mr. Johnson. At once. But before committing the murder, I set up his demise. Yes, sir, Mr. Superintendent, sir. I will certainly ask him. But I must tell you, Mr. Johnson is really, really old and weak and frail and cold. He's always cold and you know, he said that he didn't know if he had very much time left. That's what he told me, but I will certainly do my best to bring him to the school. 
and I left. I waited two days. Then I knocked on the superintendent's door. My eyes were puffy, my voice halting. Yes, yes, there's been some bad news. Mr. Superintendent, sir, Mr. Johnson passed away from a terrible disease. Terribly painful, but sudden, very, very sudden. Of course, he won't be able to come and speak to the school. I'm okay, but thank you for your concern. I walked away, and at first, I felt kind of bad. I did. But later, it occurred to me that it was their expectations of me that made them believe what they wanted to believe. And that's what brought Mr. Johnson to life, Snappers. Not some lazy 13-year-old kid, no. They say you can't judge a book by its cover, but we do it all the time. Sometimes things are just as they seem, but sometimes you have to take a closer look to understand what's really going on. Today, on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, Face value. Real stories from real people forced to step back, reconsider, and wonder if they have painted someone with the wrong brush. My name is Glenn Washington, and you're listening to Snap Judgment. Now, it's been a long time, a long time since we've brought one of my favorite storytellers to the Snap Judgment stage, the amazing Joyce Lee. She's been traveling around the globe to acclaim and applause, and we slowed her down just long enough to get a little taste of the good stuff. Joyce Lee, please tell us a story. I was 14 years old and built like a carefully stacked brick house. But you would never know it by the way I dressed. Every day I wore skirts to my ankles and shirts at least elbow length. I had thick glasses and hot combed hair. I was a hardcore Christian. And by hardcore, I mean I carried a Bible in my backpack to read for fun during lunchtime. I didn't swear or indulge in any conversation I felt Jesus would not be welcome to if he were in physical form. I mostly hung out with kids from church, and every day I went to church. And so every day, I saw Tim. Tim was my pastor's son. He was honey-skinned, dark brown eyes, a huge afro with a pick in it, saggy pants, shirts three sizes too big with perfect teeth and purple lips from all the cigarettes I saw him smoking. He was only a year older than me, but he stood over six feet in height. Each day I saw Tim, and he would greet me with this sneaky smile and slick tongue. Hey, pretty. I'd huff and roll my eyes and think to myself how disrespectful he is to dress like a thug in his father's church. I ignored him. And he'd laugh and yell, hey, pretty, I'm going to get you to say hey back to me one day. I'm working on how. And as he cackled, I'd take my seat in the pew and listen to his father warn me against boys like him. Naughty boys with low pants who didn't take nothing but drugs and alcohol seriously. Church mothers would tell me about boys like Tim. They say they were only good for kids and sorrows, and I listened to the church mothers because they seemed to have plenty of kids and sorrows. So I made it a point to stay clear of Tim. Until one day at summer school. I passed by Tim on the schoolyard before the first period bell rang. As soon as he saw me walking past, he said, Hey, pretty. Me and two other girls turned around. Hey, Keisha and Diane, I ain't talking to y'all ducks. I'm talking to the girl with some pretty browns behind them glasses. It was the first time a boy my age had called anything about my face or glasses pretty. Come with me for a sec. I want to show you something. I began to walk away and he slid in front of me and said, Come on, church girl. You ain't got to trust me to believe in your Jesus. Won't he protect you and destroy me if I mean you harm? (laughs) Test your faith and come with me. I got something I want you to see. He walked and I began to follow. 
The more I followed, the more my mind prepared what I should do if he were to attack me or set me up to be teased by him and his friends or try to get me to do drugs and drink alcohol with him or try to rape me. Yeah, that's why he called me pretty, so he could earn my trust and hurt me later. I prepared myself for the attack. Tim opened up a door to a dark room. I looked around and there was no one else in sight. I said, uh-uh, Joker. Show me what you got to show me while we outside. I can't, said Tim. It's something I don't want to show nobody but you. He kept walking inside, and I stayed outside and became afraid of his plot. So afraid, my eyes began to water. If it's something to see, why is it so dark in there? What can I see in the dark? Tim really looked at me, spotted the fear in my eyes. You think I'm going to hurt you pretty? My name is Joyce, Tim. I said, trying to toughen up. Yeah, and that's pretty on you, too. He snatched my wrist and closed the door behind me and let me go. I heard his footsteps walking away, and then I heard a heavy chair drag. And then... Tim played piano. I heard gorgeous, soft music. I almost swallowed my tongue in surprise to witness this soft talent coming from such a hard exterior as Tim's. The more Tim played, the more I felt romanced because I realized in the same respect I didn't deserve to be hurt, I also didn't deserve his vulnerability about his secret talents and this secret space. Tim continued to play until we heard the school bell ring. Then he opened the door. When I spoke, all I could repeat was, that was amazing. Tim grinned a big grin. His eyes looked more soft and brown to me now, and his large afro with the pick in it complimented his skin now. I stared at his face and suddenly realized that I now had a crush on Tim. And then Tim asked, hey, what'd you think I was gonna show you? I snatched my eyes from him in guilt and fell into silence for a moment. Thanks for playing for me, I said. Tim winked and left toting his sneaky smile with perfect teeth. All I wanted to do was hug him and apologize. I swore to myself if we hung out again, I would. But me and Tim never hung out again. I had my Bible and he had his friends. But after that, I had absolutely no hesitation in granting him a slightly flirtatious smile and a shy hand wave in response to his, Hey, pretty. very much Joyce Lee we're going to have a link to all that is Joyce Lee on our website snapjudgment.org Joyce has got a brand new album out I've had it on repeat on my electronic music device player thing and that sound design the sound design you've just heard was done by the maestro Snap's own Pat Nassidi Miller When Snap Judgment continues, we're going to Libya, we're going back in time, and we're going to find Grandma's Little Helper. When Snap Judgment, Storytelling with the Beat, the Face Value episode continues. Stay tuned. You can't judge apple by looking at a tree. You can't judge honey by looking at the bee. Hey, Snappers, this is Glenn, and I'm taking a short break to ask for a favor. If you appreciate the hours upon hours of Snap Judgment storytelling available free of charge, please let someone know on Facebook, on Twitter, on your blog, however you want to do it. Knock on someone's door 
letting someone know lets us keep making this show. I appreciate it. Thank you. And much love. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the face value episode. And today we're exploring situations, people, circumstances where things may not be as they appear. And Snappers, you know this is not the news, but sometimes we get to share stories from some of the brave journalists working on the front lines. Our own Anna Sussman spoke to Gaith Abdullahad, an Iraqi-born war correspondent who's covered conflicts from Afghanistan to the Sudan. He works for the British paper, The Guardian. Anna spoke to Gaif after the revolutions that have come to be known as the Arab Spring. In the spring of 2011, Gaif Abdullahad was in Libya, reporting on the rebels fighting a revolution against dictator Muammar Gaddafi. I spent a week in the mountains with the rebels. One night, he was staying with another journalist, on the edge of rebel-controlled territory. That night, the owner of the safe house where we're staying comes into the room and says, they're looking for you. They know that there are journalists in this town. They're searching every single house. You have to leave my house. We beg him just to hide us for the night. And he says, no, I can't do this. I have a family. I have kids. You have to leave. So we leave. We stand in the middle of this town and in, in the darkness, and we can see the police kind of searching a house by house, like doing a big circle. There is this moment when you see them moving from one house to the other. You're telling yourself this is not happening. I'm there illegal. I am there with the rebels, and I'm Iraqi. I don't have this brilliant passport to come get me out. And you realize it's a game over. This is not happening. It did happen. Gaddafi's secret service approached Gaith, apprehended him, pushed him into an unmarked truck, and dumped him into a damp prison cell. There was one light bulb. Sometimes they keep it on for two or three days. Sometimes they switch it off. A mattress on the concrete floor, you know, filthy, in a long corridor. As the days passed in the small cell, Gaith began to realize there was pretty much only one way he would ever get out of this prison. You know, after two, three days in the cell, uh, you, you, proper fear start getting in and anxiety. I mean, no one knows who, where I am. I saw the only way out is if the rebels manage to take over Tripoli. He's covered a lot of rebel movements, but the Libyan rebels and their fight against Gaddafi seemed somehow more relatable to him. They were regular people, taking up crude arms against a dictator who had been in power for 42 years. They were amazing. In Libya, you know, as a journalist, you can really see things in black and white. You see farmers, teachers, engineers fighting a regime, and they're fighting with, you know, really basic weapons. Handmade hunting rifles, you know, villagers, farmers versus uh, a military. As an Iraqi, he felt a kind of kinship, an understanding of the Libyan situation. In a way, yes, of course, I was welcoming this change. I, I was on the side of the change as an Arab, as an Iraqi. The guards in the prison were severe. He heard them beating prisoners in cells down the corridor with chains, throwing limp bodies against the walls like bags of rice. One guard, a man named Hatem, was particularly furious with Graith. One of the guards came raging in and he was shouting, We'll kill you all. We love this regime. He was talking to me and he was saying, it's all of you journalists, it's because of you, there is no uprising. The guards became more agitated as the revolution gained strength. Soon, the rebel forces were right outside the prison. There was one day, I was in the small cell, we heard a battle outside the gates of the prison. Kalashnikovs and then heavy machine guns firing from a few meters away from the walls of my cell. And then suddenly there was a moment of hope that, okay, the rebels have won, they've taken over Tripoli and they're coming here to release us. All the prisoners in the cell, they kind of like start shouting, Ya Allah, oh my God, and victory. And, and then the battle ends. The battle ended, the rebels were dispersed, and Graith was still in his cell. 
And that was, you know, a real moment of, of depression. He was stuck in the prison, stuck with Gaddafi's loyal guards. So he decided he would try to understand his captors, particularly the man named Hatem, who loved Gaddafi so deeply and hated journalists like Raif. I might as well try to understand this, this officer. He was tall, dark-skinned, wearing glasses, and we would stand and we talk to each other, not talking as a prisoner and a guard, but just two normal people talking. I knew two things about him only, that he, as a security officer, he's not scared of the rebels. And he said he had a kids and a family. So these are the tiny little personal details I knew about him. For two long weeks, Raith lived in a dark little cell, talking to Hatem through a grate in the door. And then one day he was told he would be freed. His newspaper, The Guardian in Great Britain, had negotiated his release and managed to get him on one of the last flights out of Libya. Four months later, the rebels finally took the capital. This is the moment so many Libyans have been waiting so long to see. And it is over. The rebel forces and their supporters now running freely... The day Tripoli fell, Graith called his editor. He wanted to return to Libya. There was one man he wanted to find. His former guard, Hatem. Graith made his way back to the capital and with a little investigating, tracked down Hatem's house in a suburb of Tripoli and knocked on his door. I looked at his house, he opened the door. And it was very funny, it's like meeting an old friend. And seriously, it was like meeting an old friend. There was this point of, uh, can I call it camaraderie? He started laughing, and how are you, and how have you been, and how did you find me? And it's very, very, very strange feeling. I realized at that moment why I was trying to find the officers again. In a way, it's a vindication. Look at me. I was a blindfolded prisoner in a tiny little cell under your mercy. Here I am back as a man standing in front of you. We are equal. Then we drive around Tripoli and we go have dinner. We have fish on the sea. And in driving around the captured capital as the sun began to set, they were stopped over and over at rebel-controlled checkpoints. And Graith noticed something about his former guard. Every time we approached a rebel checkpoint, he would really tense up, eyes kind of squinting and pursing his lips, forcing a smile on his face and forcing himself to be polite. It's like the big cycle. Here's a guy who only a week earlier would have put all those guys in jail in a cell. People would be shivering in front of him. Here is this man kind of driving around Tripoli like a scared cat. He understood Hatem's fear. Graith had spent some time that week with the newly victorious rebels. I went out with the rebels. They raided the houses. People would be screaming, scared. And I was thinking how easy can people change from being the victims to becoming the victimizers, from the oppressed to become the oppressor. In the courtyard of his former guard's house, drinking tea amid a city still smoldering with civil war, Graith found himself walking a curious line. When Saddam Hussein was first toppled in Iraq, Graith thought all of Saddam's supporters should be punished. But then he learned better. You know, after the regime change in Iraq in 2003, I was such an airhead. I was like, oh, all of you people who serve Saddam Hussein, you deserve to go to Siberia. And then I learned how stupid that was, and I learned how much you pay for an idea like this. It's these ideas that created, basically, the civil war in Iraq. Sitting with Hatem, I did feel sympathy for the guy. It's very easy for me as a journalist trying to cross into Libya and see the black and white. And then when you come there and you see the former rebels behaving like oppressors, who is to say, Mr. Hatem, you're an evil person and you should go to jail. Where is the black and where is the white? So then suddenly everything is different shades of gray. Thank you very much, Gaif, for sharing your story with the SNAP. Now, listeners should know that Gaif has now been kidnapped in Libya, Afghanistan, and Iraq. 
And we appreciate it, guys, but be careful out there. Thank you very much. That story was produced by Anna Sussman. And we're going to have links to Geist's remarkable reporting on our website, snapjudgment.org. And now, our next story from Snap's own Stephanie Fu. She interviewed Emil Klein about a situation he recently ran into where things initially looked one way before turning into something else entirely. There's nothing Emil Klein loves more than a good story. Hey, I'm Emil. Emil's currently bicycling across the country for five years, talking to as many people as he can and collecting their stories. Last summer, he passed through the town of Gibsonton, Florida. Uh, the whole town, I mean, there's no town. It was a ghost town. So there's one motel, and that's this motel. One of the men staying in the motel comes out of his room and approaches Emil. And says, oh, you looking to stay here? And I said, yeah. And he says, oh, it's not that bad, you know. There are cockroaches in my room, but that's because I have food in there. Somebody tried to break into my room, but they're not going to mess with you. Look, you have a bike. Who's going to try to steal from a guy with nothing? And we, we, like, strike up a conversation, and I'm telling about what I'm doing, going across the country, getting all these stories. And he says, you know, I think you would really like to hear my story, uh, and I'd be really pleased to share it with you. I'm a seven-time ex-con. This is a fantastic opportunity, and this person seems like a gentleman of sorts. And I said, well, yeah, I definitely think a lot of people would like to hear that story. I went into this situation with the general impression that everybody, if you're down to get down on a personal level, is going to be a cool person. And he came in, and we sat down and started the interview, and he really opened up. Just He went into all the tough emotional aspects that he went through in his life. He was crying a good amount of the time when he was telling me these stories about his life because they were difficult to talk about, really tough subjects. Emil has never heard anything like this. It's a killer story. Everything he'd been circling the country and searching for this entire time. Unlike some of the prior experiences where I had interviewed people and it seemed very difficult to ascertain the meaning on a universal level, this was obvious. And I was really excited to share this really important and not often shown or appreciated life with other people. After we had the interview, you know, I had explained to him that this was a pro bono thing, and I gave him my number and the websites and said, thank you, that's a wrap, that's the end of the night. And he lingered a moment and says, oh, well, hey, man, do you mind doing this thing for me? He wanted me to pay for his room for two nights. The interviewee says that his girlfriend will pay Emil back in the morning. For a second, Emil wavers. He doesn't want to have to pay this person for his story. That's just not how it works. But this is just a loan. So Emil decides to trust him. I, I mean, here, here it is. This guy's just given me this incredibly worthwhile portion of his life. When you have one of those heavy emotional talks with somebody and they really open up in that way to you, you imagine that that's some type of fast friendship that you've created with this person. It's kind of difficult to say no. So I say, sure. It just seemed like the right thing to do. We shake hands, I give him my word, and my word means a lot to me. But as they start to flesh out the details, everything starts to seem really sketchy. He wanted me to pay more than the room was going to be worth, three times as much. And now that's when it started getting like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. And he goes to his room, which just so happens to be right next to my room. I think, scam, 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 scam. But I'm still thinking the whole time that this guy opened up to me. Do you think that he made up his whole life story? That's really hard for me to believe. When it seemed like he was trying to scam me, it didn't seem like anything was adding up. So the idea of somebody being like a mastermind and coming up with lies doesn't seem to be coherent. The interviewee is a totally different person now than he was when he was telling his story. But Emil still feels obligated to believe in him because he gave him his word and because he wants to use his story, which is just too good to give up. Yeah. I don't know which way to go. In the morning, Emil leaves his room to go to breakfast. And then I hear a door close. And I look over, and there's my next-door neighbor, the interviewee. And he says, hey, where are you going? So I said, oh, you know, don't worry, we're all set. He said, well, why don't you come over into my room, have a meeting for a second. So I walk over to his room. He sits on his bed, and I'm standing by the door, my hand on the doorknob. 
And he says, well, what's going on, man? I thought we had something down. I thought we were set. I said, we are. He said, well, it looks like you're backing out. I said, well, I gave you my word. And he said, politicians give their words. He said, police give their word. I said, well, I'm not a policeman. I'm not a politician. I'm, I gave you my word. I'm here. He starts spewing a few racial epithets at me. Just saying honky, whitey, all you whiteys are the same. I mean, just most certainly I was afraid of him. I was in his castle. Emil nervously excuses himself and flees to a nearby diner. And there he realizes that he cannot bring himself to go back. Unfortunately, I guess, it's just like, all right, okay, fine, you know. I decided what I thought was best for me and what seemed best for me in this situation was to run. And I cycled for two days and got to the other side of Florida and my phone keeps ringing off the hook. So I listened to some of his voicemails. They're like, hey, boy, I don't see you. I'm looking forward to seeing you. But you know, if you don't come through, I'm gonna find you and I'm gonna kick the out of you. And just like message after message like that. And Emil looks at his tape recorder. He has this story in his hands, but does it really belong to him? I'm carrying his, his story on that recorder, and I feel like I'm carrying this thing that just keeps getting heavier and heavier. It's just weighing on me. I just deleted it. The moment pressing the button was like, it felt fantastic. I mailed the key back to the motel and included a letter which was addressed to this guy's room number. In the letter I said, I'm sorry that I went back on my word and I want you to know that that story's been deleted and nobody will ever hear that story because that's yours. So can you tell me even one tiny detail about what he did or, uh, you know. So the idea of doing that is just infeasible to me. You're going to let this be the greatest story never told. I mean, how many times do we have to go through this? I'm not going to tell you what he told me. That's the whole word thing, right? If I couldn't hold up to my word in one way, I had to figure out some way to hold up to my word. Now, Emil Klein has a fabulous job. He travels the country on his bicycle in search of the perfect story. We'll have a link on Emil's organization, Your U.S., on our website, snapjudgment.org. And you're listening to Snap Judgment, the face value episode. Don't go anywhere, because after the break, the guy who won the Snap Judgment Award for funniest story of the year returns, oh yes, on Snap Judgment. The face value episode continues. Look at me, you know what to see. Hey, Snappers, however you listen to Snap Judgment, on the NPR app, on iTunes, on Stitcher, however you do it, please write a review. Tell them why you dig the Snap. It does us a world of good. I appreciate it. Peace out. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. My name is Glenn Washington, and on today's episode, Face Value, we've learned that some things are not quite as simple as they seem, but sometimes the issues are black and white. It's fall. 1968. Bill Corbin is celebrating on Main Street with the rest of his small New Jersey town. Usually after a victory during football season, we would have a like a little victory parade through town. And this young white girl reported that some black kid had grabbed her butt. 
and she turned around and just named the first person that she seen. So the police arrested Thomas Pollard, who we call Tudabug, but he wasn't the one that did it. So he was arrested, prosecuted, jailed for it. He was in jail for a couple of years. I had no faith in the system after that. You can no longer depend on the man downtown to take care of business. The 60s were a turbulent time in the country, civil rights era. I just didn't get along with white people because we had no interaction outside of sports. I've never really sat at the same table and broke bread with a white guy or a white girl. Basically, it was them against us. When Martin Luther King was murdered, well, everybody loved him, as you well know. And once he got killed, the anger just set us teenagers off. So we just went to school and decided we just ain't taking this anymore. That was basically the first incident of violence at that high school. We just started running up and down the halls, through the door open to the classroom, and told any black person in there, said, come on, time to go. And they just got up and came with us. We ran to school, just hit anybody that got in our way, including teachers. One person got a broken jaw, a lot of cuts and bruises, and one teacher had a heart attack. He went down, and you know they just stepped over him and kept on going. By the time the state troopers came, the fight had ended. They tried to question Bill, but he could only think about his friend who was wrongfully arrested. I had nothing to say to anybody in power. Nothing. After the riot, Bill noticed that his teachers and classmates treated him differently. It happened to change things in the school because all of a sudden now we weren't taken for granted anymore. I mean, all we wanted was some type of respect and recognition. And before then, we weren't getting anything. But I really did want to go to college to try to better myself and to better the black race. I went to Glassboro State and I really got to worldly politics. And that's when my love of the black power struggle really came to the light in my mind. We take care of our own. We must love black people. 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 Bill really did get his opportunity to take care of his own. It all started with a punch. There was a major fight at one of the fast food places between the blacks and the whites, and the blacks got the better of the white guys. The black kids involved in the fight ran back to their dorm, Hawthorne. In the meantime, the white community heard about the fight, and things started getting out of control. It divided the whole town, or maybe thousands of people. An angry mob formed and went to Hawthorne, looking for revenge. Bill lived in Hawthorne, and so he helped take charge of the situation. He ushered black students from all across campus into the dorm. And we gathered everybody inside, and then we just took over the dorm and, and just held it down. They basically told any white people in the dorm to leave, and they just had to get out. Black students barricaded themselves into the dorm and watched the mob approach. You got to the window and... Here's people coming across campus, cars and trucks pulling up. It was white folks coming from everywhere. And we were outnumbered. They were threatening to kill any and everybody who came out of that dorm black. We should burn this down. We should burn that down. And, you know, we just thought it was going to be over in, in an hour or so. But there were so many people who just kept coming up and coming up. What they didn't know is that we, let's just say we had picked up some artillery, some guns, you know, shotguns and, and, and pistols. They were ready to protect their friends who were involved in the fight, no matter what it took. We weren't going to just turn over a couple of friends to them. No, no, you come on in and try to take them. Come on, bring it. You want a piece of me? Here it is. The police rolled up, but Bill and his friends refused to talk to them because they had no idea what would happen to them if they left the building. We did not trust the Glassboro Police Department and or the state troopers, not at all. Profiling existed completely then. We'd been there, done that. At first, Billy tried calling more friends for backup. But then the phone lines went dead. They cut the phone lines to the dorm. They had a couple of large megaphones. You know, they had the spotlights and everything else. The dorm was surrounded. Hell yeah, I was afraid. Very afraid. Wrong spark. You could have gotten some college students killed, including me. Then all of a sudden, here come the National Guard. The National Guard dispersed the crowds and tried to communicate with the students inside Hawthorne. At first, Bill and the others debated what to do. The National Guard wanted them to leave the building, but they were sure that if they did, they would be arrested or beaten. They expected the system to fail them, just like before. For three days, the National Guard waited for them to make a decision. They didn't force their way in. They used great restraint. They really did. That restraint impressed the students, so they finally agreed to talk. 
we let the negotiators in. Like Martin said, if you try to talk things out and instead of fighting things out, maybe things will work themselves out. Then there was questions asked and conversation between the guys. I mean, you know, look, let's just end this and get on back to the business of being a college student if they're going to let us. The students agreed to leave the building if no charges were filed against them for their standoff. They opened the doors, braced themselves, and... Come on out, you know, and just walk. We ended the siege peacefully. It was the last thing Bill expected, that the man would actually be on his side. We had a mob of white college students. They could have killed us all for the National Guard. To let the whole thing just end without any more violence, I think it was pretty remarkable on their point. I I really learned a lot. And through negotiations, yes, things can happen. Things can change. Things are ready to be changed, but you have to talk. If I had to do it all over again, I think I'd have been the passive person that I am now. Instead of just taking my fist out on people now, I would just, I like to talk now instead of fight. Big thanks to Bill Corbin for sharing his story and Emil Klein for his help. That piece was produced by our own Stephanie Fu. Now, regular Snap Judgment storyteller Josh Healy is the kind of young man that mothers around the globe wish their daughters would bring home. He's good, kind, law-abiding, the kind of fellow that would do anything to help someone out of a jam. And this story was recorded at the Mill Valley Public Library Naked Truth Night. And just a warning to sensitive listeners, this next story does contain references to a substance that is illegal in certain jurisdictions. Josh Healy, take it away. So this is a story about the first time I ever helped an 86-year-old with her medication. If there's anything in the world that's more awesome than a little old grandma, it's a little old grandma-in-law which is what I have, my wife's grandma, Phyllis. Now, Grandma Phyllis, she stands about five foot one, has bleached blonde hair. She is also deeply Southern Baptist and the only one in her family who still goes to church every week. Me and her get along great. Now, last year, Grandma Phyllis, unfortunately, she had this pinched nerve in her back. The doctor said she had two choices to deal with the pain. She could either get the normal prescription painkillers or she could get a prescription for medical marijuana. (laughs) Grandma Phyllis had decided that she didn't want any more painkillers, so she was going to try what she politely called the plant medicine. Now, she wasn't driving much these days, so she needed someone to take her to the clinic. And because everyone else in the family was busy, yes, I was the one who was going to take Grandma to get her medication. (laughs) So I'd never been to a pot club before. Uh, I go to pick her up, and I take her to the club, and it didn't look like what I expected. It was actually super clean, modern. There was brown couches lining the walls and soft indie rock music over the speakers. It kind of reminded me of Starbucks. And uh, so we go up to the counter and the clerk's standing there and he's this nice tall guy and he's got, uh, he's got these like Buddy Holly glasses and a ZZ Top beard and you know, he's just super cool. And he's just like, uh, so, can I help you too? It's me and Grandma Phyllis. And I can tell she's a little nervous, so I take the lead. And I'm like, yeah, um, trying to get something for my grandma-in-law? And the guy is like, sure, no problem. Can I see your prescription? 
So we hand it to him, he takes a look at it, and then he goes into full salesman mode. He's like, well, all right, ma'am. These are our different options. You've got uh, purple arugula. We've got uh, Eureka's Envy. We've got Rainbow's Revenge. But this, this is what I would recommend for you right here, ma'am. This is called Grateful But Not Yet Dead. This, it's what I would give my own grandma. So this is more than enough endorsement for us. So we buy the prescribed amount and I drive Grandma Phyllis back home. I take her inside, you know, I make sure she's okay and I'm about to put on my coat and get in my car and drive back home when kind of out of nowhere, she pulls out a box of rolling papers, <laughs> hands them to me in my direction and says in her sweet little Southern Baptist voice, Josh, do you know how to roll a joint? I said, what? She said, well, I mean, I figured that since you were here and you know my hands aren't too good these days and do you think you could help me out? I'm supposed to be here for Grandma Phyllis and for her health. So I'm like, sure, why not? And I'm nervous because, I mean, I want to make it good, but I don't want to make it too good. So I make it in a mediocre but still presentable fashion. I light it and I pass it to Grandma Phyllis. She takes it and she looks at it for a second. And I'm thinking she might have second thoughts, but no. She puts it to her lips and she takes a huge hit. And then another, and then another. Then she dumps the ash in the tray and she casually holds it between her fingers. I say, Grandma Phyllis, have you done this before? She says, no, I don't think so. But could you find me a paper clip just for the little piece at the end? Fifteen minutes later, we're sitting on the couch, sucking on butterscotch candies and watching reruns of Golden Girls. I look over to her and I say, so what do you think? How are you feeling? How's your back? And she says, you know what? I don't feel any pain right now. Seems to be working. I'm like, yes, this is great. Medical marijuana actually serving a medical purpose. <laughs> Grandma Phyllis is feeling better and I'm feeling great about helping her out. So I'm just about to go put on my coat and leave again uh, when she stops me and she says, you know, Josh, I'm probably not going to need all of this. It's too much for me. Would you like to take some home? I think about it for a second, maybe two, and smile and say, no, Grandma, my back is just fine. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Josh Healy. Josh Healy is a storyteller, a comedian, an educator, and activist who needs to stay away from Grandmama's house he lives in Oakland, California. That piece was produced by Renzo Gorio and Jamie DeWolf. Now, you have reached the end of the Snap Judgment episode, but don't be sad and blue. Hours of Snaptastic storytelling, movies, pictures, full episodes waiting for you right now on our website, snapjudgment.org. Share some Snap with your loved one. Our Facebook, Snap Judgment. Twitter, Snap Judgment ORG. Tweet, tweet. 
Now, Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the funkiest crew at the Earth, Wind & Fire concert. Always remember and never forget the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. I take Stephanie food with me everywhere I go, but Anna Sussman likes to stay at home. Pat and C.D. Miller is at the dartboard. Never bet that Jamie DeWolf can't balance a chair on his head. Renzo Gorio can balance Jamie and the chair on his head. Rita Daniels likes to talk to strangers. Lindsay Lee Keel does not talk to strangers. Okay, so have you ever gone to a seedy area, found the grittiest dive bar you could, sat down in the back and watched some Johnny come in, order a tall glass of milk, and please put some ice cubes in it? (laughs) Don't tease. That's just a corporation for public broadcasting. Trying to keep it real. Put some ice cubes in your beer and don't let the bad guys beat them up. PRX, the public radio exchange, takes the public and the media and serves them up with a twist of line, baby. PRX.org. Now, even though this is not the news, this is not the news. In fact, you could go to your friend Barney's house. You could talk to your friend about the face value snap judgment episode you just listened to. You could say, Barney, you know, some things are really not as they seem. You can't just accept stuff at face value. And you know, Barney, there's something I've been meaning to tell you for a long time. You see, a long, long time. You see, I think you may find me a simple man, Barney. A simple man who doesn't notice when somebody sneaks through my back door talking to my wife when I'm away at work. I just want to ask you something, Barney. The next time. The next time you come to my house when I'm not home, could you do me a favor, Bonnie? Could you please not eat up all my pistachio chip ice cream? Could you do me that little favor? Bonnie, you could have that crazy conversation and say all that to your neighbor, Bonnie, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.